Hello and welcome to the Sekiro Podcast. My name is Park Kelly and as always I'm joined by Ushin Collins, but on clean feed this time. Indeed, we are worlds apart, or at least uh, provinces apart this weekend. <laughs> You're in your home province of Leinster? I am, I'm home in the parents' house for Christmas, but, but the podcast show must go on. So here we are on Christmas Eve recording a special Christmas present podcast for all of our loyal listeners. And all you loyal listeners can hear us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, pretty much all the podcast apps. So please do rate, like, subscribe to the podcast. It is so helpful, beneficial, and it really means a lot to us. It does, and it means more people can hear our wonderful ideas about Pro 14. And we are straight into Derby time this week. Round 11. We're halfway there, Park. Yes, we're at the midpoint of the regular season. But first though, we will look at the rugby news of the week. And unbelievably, Rory Cockett only got three weeks for a gouge. That is ridiculous. Yeah, so what seems to have happened here is that Cockett went in and pleaded guilty to contact with the eye area, which is the lowest level offence, rather than reckless or deliberate contact with the eye. I don't actually know why anybody paid any attention to what he pleaded guilty for. It's so clear from video evidence that he had his hand in Chris Clutie's face. I'm amazed that they went for the bottom end of the bottom sanction and then gave him a week off for being polite at the hearing. Madness. Those ties are so important. You know, a good suit and tie helps. It certainly does. And sometimes it's all about perception. A bit like what happened to poor Timmy Soara Saracens against Northampton. Northampton got given a bonus point victory and Timmy Soara were fined 30 grand just because their ground got like apocalyptically snowed on. I do know they didn't have the covers on and I their underfloor heating might have been functioning properly or on time. But three feet of snow, like I don't care what they had in place. Nothing was going to fix three feet of snow. And a 30 grand find is not going to help them develop no, it seems a bit punitive, and from European rugby's perspective, it really sends the wrong message. It's supposed to be about encouraging the game, and I get that Timmy Soara really should have been able to do better to make sure that game could go ahead, but you're helping nobody with this. Not at all. Well, apart from Northampton, who don't have to like play an extra fixture. Yeah, and I guess it just goes to show that money goes a long way in this game, but not all the way, as we saw one of Fiji's scrum halves, Frank Lamani, turn down a big money move to Wasps to focus on the World Cup and playing with the Fiji club site. It's brilliant. Like That is such an incredible piece of news. I actually think Fiji will be a surprise in the next World Cup because they're just playing well on so many levels and little things like this give them the best preparation possible. Plus, who wants to play for Wasps this year? Half their own squad don't seem to. <laughs> True. Well, speaking about people staying at home, London Irish are actually finding a new home and are moving back near towards London. That should make a big difference for them in terms of a fan base. It's been a bit tricky as London-based rugby fans. You only really have Harlequins to support. So nice that they'll have a bit of competition in the Premiership. Technically, Saracens are a London team in that London is like, you know, half of England. <laughs> yeah, in the in the London banking view of the world, they're a London team, but nobody else uh, nobody else thinks so. And one last piece of news on the international front, the Irish Women's Six Nations squad has been announced and Ali's back. Yeah, a good representative squad across all the different provinces, but the real highlight is that record try scorer Ali Miller is back in the squad. Great to see her returning from that injury and her club form is looking really good at the moment as well. Yeah, it's such a boost and I'm looking forward to get to as many games as I can in Donnybrook. Yeah, looking forward to that as well. And I guess getting right into the rugby, we had another game of Irish interest. Starting out on Friday night, the first of the Derby games, Ulster against Munster. Ulster coming out 19-12 victors. When the teams were announced, this is the result I was kind of expecting. It's just a shame that the game didn't live up to the billing of an Interpro. A little bit, and it certainly had a dramatic enough start. Uh, Robert Balakun getting yellow carded within 12 seconds of the kickoff. You'd have to say, if it happened later in the game, 
probably a red. Yeah, I know Sweetenham landed on his side, but I just don't know what refs are able to judge things on anymore. It just seems such a grey area that they need actually clear laws that aren't open to interpretation anymore because it's just a bit ridiculous. This one was a little strange. So yes, in terms of he landed on his side, so it wasn't landing on head or shoulders. But for me, it was just the recklessness that Balakun went into the tackle with. I know he's a young guy and I know his adrenaline is through the roof, but it just looked like there was never any intent to catch the ball. He just looked like he cleaned him out completely. Yeah, it was just a bit mad. And like he got rightly binned. I honestly do think it happens five minutes later. He's getting a red. I think the ref kind of went, hold on a second. Are you okay, Sweetenham? You're fine. Yeah. There was no malice in that. There couldn't have been. Let's not end the game after 10 seconds. There's got to be a bit of common sense prevails. But at the same time, a citing commissioner's warning wouldn't go amiss. You know, that type of calm down. <laughs> yeah. Cool your jets there, kid. Jamie didn't do anything with that extra man, though. Yeah, I was much more frustrated at Munster than I was at the referee. With a man advantage, we just didn't do what we needed to do. We didn't make Ulster pay for that. And it kind of reflected Munster's whole game plan, which was deliberately very conservative, very limited rugby. It was all about pinning them back and making Ulster run at us. In all fairness, from that penalty... Nordy Murphy comes through the mall legally, wins the ball back, and he just holds on to it until he gets the penalty eight minutes later. It was such a great piece of work by him. It was, and he had a great game in general. Yeah, like I don't know how he didn't get mad in the match, to be honest. He had a great game in general. From an Ulster point of view, they had a real blow on 24 minutes when Cooney went off with the HIA. But to be fair, Dave Shanahan came on and played a blinder. He had a really good game. He's an electric player. I just think his pass is a bit too erratic. Sometimes it's really fast and pacey, but also high, low, chest. But a big issue for me from they're playing too much rugby badly in their own half it's okay like trying to play from your own 22 but at least make line breaks they just weren't doing that they may not have made as many line breaks as they would have liked but they did make the couple that led to tries and for me the first try in particular was just a spacing issue Addison ended up being able to get an outside edge on Botha who just doesn't quite have enough pace to get back with him and they managed to make 30, 40, 50 metres and the same thing happened when Balakun went over for the try off another nice bit of offloading. Ulster were finding space out wide and making line breaks when they pushed the Munster defence around a bit. Or just got the ball out there. Like Burns was making some really poor decisions for me. Just wasn't getting the ball out past McCluskey because he was getting double man tackled all the time. So if you could get around McCluskey quickly there was space there to be exploited and they just weren't. Yeah, I think for me the story of this game was a Munster team who didn't particularly want to attack and set up to defend and just got caught out a couple of times having said that there were a couple of what I would think were dubious decisions in the last 20 minutes starting on 60 where Ulster got a turnover penalty for me their loose head prop was the assist tackler so should have been a penalty the other way and if that had gone in Munster I think would have gone ahead at that stage and then there was a really dodgy missed call on about 74 minutes both that came out because the ball had come out of the ruck but the ref just happened to be looking the other way and again we got penalised and enabled Ulster to go ahead yeah he just looked like he kind of rushed in from the side it's one of those weird ones I've seen refs give them one way and another way you can feel hard done by I was counting the tackles from Munster players that started low then were riding high constantly I'm like oh that's not a thing anymore like <laughs> those things can go both ways and I think we all have to start acknowledging more that refs are human and will just not call everything that we see yeah that's true and you know what if you had offered me a losing bonus point for this game before the match kicked off and I saw the team sheets I would have taken it. It's not a bad result for Munster from the first derby. Uh, Belfast is a tough place to go and win. No, and let's be perfectly honest. In general, Munster's defence was pretty good. You know, he smothered 
Ulster fairly well. It took special stuff to get around you. Yeah, Addison looked really good and I definitely think 13 is his best position. Ulster, other than the fact that they could break lines quite well, I thought their back row were superb. I thought Jordy Murphy, or Nordy Murphy as we call him, and Marcel Kutsia were good, even if Kutsia did get a little bit hot-tempered at times. It's just a shame that Ulster Pack didn't play as well as them and their set-piece was poor. Well, both set-pieces were poor, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, a lot of new combinations and missing key personnel, but you still expect better than that. I think, for me, the bigger concern was that JJ Hanrahan at 10 was offering so little control of the game. We seemed to be kicking a lot of the ball away and Matheson was good at that. And so was Cronin when he came on. But there just didn't seem to be a whole level of game management happening from a Munster point of view. No, like it just told that it was like 55 minutes plus when you actually got past six phases or something like that. It was just kind of like, whoa, you weren't really stringing much together, which was really poor. Not ideal anyway. Although Ulster really didn't take advantage. If they'd got the ball into the danger man's hands often enough, they could have really run out well here. Yeah, they really could have. And to me, it just proved they are very much a four-player team. They need Henderson, Stockdale, Best and Cooney on the pitch together to look like a team that will cause damage. They look a bit rudderless without them. I'll tell you what, we might leave that there and move on to another team who regularly look rudderless, but really didn't on Friday night. Cardiff were hosting the Dragons and Dragons nearly beat them and ended up 19-16 to Cardiff in the end. Right, is this the new manager bounce that teams have that they kind of look like they're good now Jackman's gone, but next week we'll be back to normal service? Well, they have another Welsh derby next week, so we will get to see them tested against a team at their level, certainly based on the next game we'll talk about. But... I think the conditions played a huge part in this. Cardiff are really good when they can get quick, fluid ball. And the conditions in the Arms Park were horrendous. The weather is always the great equaliser in rugby. I do love that. You know, I really do. But even though Cardiff have a plastic pitch, the weather shouldn't have affected the scrum. No, the scrum was diabolical from both sides. I don't think there was a completed scrum in the first half. And that wasn't even the dumbest thing that was happening. Zane Kirshner went off really early in the game for smashing a guy off the ball with no arms and he saw yellow. And again, easily could have been red and I've seen them given. And then the Dragon's tie head goes in with the shoulder and catches the Cardiff tie head on the head with the elbow. Like, what are they playing at? And that was a half an hour gone in the game. They've already had a yellow card period and now they're down to 14 for the rest of the game. Cardiff, to be fair, came out after the second half and looked a lot more composed. So what you're saying is Cardiff need to be playing against a 14-man Dragon's team to look composed. Gotcha. That is <laughs> that is that is point taken. Yep, valid. But again, I know you don't want to hear people banging on about the conditions all the time, but Anscombe took a penalty on from inside his own half and he nearly cleared the stand with it. The wind was unbelievable. And you can tell that that's why they had enough to kind of win in the end. You know, when you have that type of wind behind you for the second half, it really does help when the opposition are tiring. It does. And there was a little bit of tired play from both sides. In particular, Dragons managed to tie it up with a very soft try. Cardiff just falling off tackles and letting the edge back into the game. But then Cardiff finally show a bit of composure and the scrum goes down again with nothing left on the clock. Anscombe steps up and wins the game for them. He is such a key player for Cardiff. When he's playing well, they do seem to just play better as a team in general. They do, and he looked a lot better this week than last week with Thomas Williams playing back at nine. As a half-back pairing, they genuinely do click and I guess... I was a bit critical last week of Anscombe at 10. I still would like to see him at 15 with Jared Evans coming in, but he played really well this week. Maybe just needs Williams inside, and because Williams creates the space and time he needs for him to get the best out of his own play. Flipping to set piece, I thought Cardiff had a decent line-out, especially given the wind. They got a lot of their own ball back with decent attacking potential. In all fairness, getting any type of clean ball in those type of conditions from a line-out is good, and to look relatively dominant in that area is a bonus. From a Dragons perspective, let's because we don't want to beat them over the head like 
that 10 Lewis looked fairly good. Took a nice drop goal as well. He did. It was a great drop goal, actually. And he had, seemed to have a lot of control through the game. I, I was very impressed with him. Running the ball well, unleashing the Dragons' back line. Something we haven't really seen from the Dragons so far this year is that kind of control. Well, on a consistent basis anyway. I think discipline was still a problem, let alone the yellow and the red card. They were just giving away too many penalties, which let Cardiff off the hook. It's something I have to work on. The rest of the season is a bit of a shot to nothing for them. I say a lot of players will be trying to prove a point to new managers. If they can rein in that enthusiasm, they'll be doing well. No one has any expectations as to what the Dragons are going to do for the rest of this season. Literally anything they accomplish is a bonus. Then on Saturday, we started off three what should have been incredible games of rugby with one of the worst games of rugby I've watched. Ospreys v Scarlets. <laughs> this one really didn't live up to the top billing. I mean, this is, in theory, the two best sides in Wales. And it wasn't even as good a game as the previous evening. No, it was terrible. I want my 80 minutes back. For the first 15 minutes, it was kind of as expected. No one really exerting a whole lot of dominance on the game. Exchanging penalties. Lots and lots and lots of kicking. For a game that finished 19-12, I actually don't know where the scores came from. You know, to be perfectly honest. Well, I think what made it feel quite scrappy was both teams were competing really hard at the breakdown. James Davies was back for Scarlets and the Ospreys had Alan Wynn and a few players willing to go in over the ball. But the accuracy just wasn't there. So you ended up with a really messy breakdown and a lot of slow ball. I thought you were going to say they're competing at who could knock the ball on the most. Yeah, there was a, a bit of inaccuracy there too. The discipline as well was a bit bizarre. There didn't seem to be a whole lot of people trying their best to make the most legal of tackles. No, and I don't know how George North was on the pitch, to be honest. He shouldered Davies' head through the rock. Like, it's shocking. What else was shocking? And I mean, this one stood out to me the minute the team sheets were announced. What's Hadley Parks doing at 10? What, why is there some sort of a logic that Wales need another 10? I couldn't believe it. I was like, but he's not, he's not a 10 though, is he? He's a 12. He is a 12. I think he's covered for them a little bit a couple of seasons ago at 10, but that was in the depths of an injury crisis, not when you've got Reese Patchell sitting on the pitch at the same time. At 15, is this a whole thing that they're worried about Reese Patchell not playing well? And if they put him at 15, he can be a bit more of a mazy runner and give him space? Potentially. I just think Patchell is what's making that Scarlet's team click, and he has been off form the last couple of weeks. Maybe it's a chance to just let him back to his more comfortable 15 position. And then put him back into 10 when he starts showing a bit more form and hopefully push on from there. Yeah. Having said that, he got a lot of ball because the Ospreys had zero interest in playing possession rugby. They were just booting the ball away every opportunity they got. Remember, Ospreys won this match and they just kept kicking the ball away. It was madness. Absolute, absolute madness. Well, they won the game, but they got a lucky call from the TMO. We both saw this try and for me, I think he knocked that ball on rather than grounding it. I don't think the ball was on the ground when he touched it like it wasn't a ball hits the ground while his hand hits the ground his hand was on the ground beforehand and he wasn't really in control when he pushed it down for me he made contact with the ball and then the ball made contact with the ground those two things didn't happen at the same time again there's milliseconds in it and it's the type of tries that you don't necessarily want to see disallowed either but i do think scarlet's can feel a little hard done by but to be honest that all started from when steph evans came on he literally looked like he did everything in his power to mess up that for Scarlets. But the thing is, on 60 minutes, it looked like they were going to be able to edge a win out for this and they just needed a chill. And they didn't. There was a lot of frantic, misguided energy and Scarlet's execution was really poor. 
Yeah, and then it really did help that Sam Davies decided to actually switch on from 50 minutes onwards. I genuinely thought he'd been subbed on at halftime listening to the commentary, and then I saw him and he was still wearing 10 on his back. He was doing his best missing persons impression for the entire first half, though. Yeah, he was. He was fairly anonymous. But when Ospreys went ahead, they definitely made sure they stayed ahead. Some of the turnovers they made, especially in the last dying minutes, were incredible. They were, and there was a bit of a headless moment at the end that gave Scarlett a chance to win the game, not without controversy. The stadium clock was apparently wrong. And Ben Whitehouse, to be fair to him, because normally I'm not a fan, screamed at the Ospreys 9 that the clock was wrong. There was still 10 seconds left. Went back to the 10 and the 10 put it into touch nearly behind his own goal line. And then Scarlets took their time, took the line out. Drew, oh no, wait, they didn't do that. <sighs> no. And they tried something fast and flashy and stupid. Yeah, they just needed a lot more composure, but they didn't have composure in this game. And you could tell even when Dan Jones came on and Hadley Parks went back to 12, they just didn't have that type of structure that... Patchell on his day playing well brings to them there wasn't the type of game management they needed which is such a shame because their set piece and especially their scrum was on the front foot for me the Scarlet scrum was dominant throughout and Osprey's only got parity when both props started angling inwards yeah which didn't get caught at all the other big one for me Scarlet's tackle completion rate in the first half was extraordinary I don't think they missed a single tackle didn't quite manage to sustain that performance in the second half though no and if Scarlet's were making all the tackles Osprey's were making the big tackles they're just smashing people in defence I think if Ospreys had come into this game and Sam Davies had played the first half this would have been great and they could have really done a number on the Scarlets here I was actually very surprised to see Davies get man of the match I thought I had to go to somebody in the pack I think when you score two drop goals and literally drag your team over the line at the end of a poor display it kind of has to go your way yeah plus I think it was backs who were rewarding it and they always pick other backs because <laughs> they don't know what forwards do yeah it's great we'll move on to the next game and the 1872 Cup Edinburgh hosted Glasgow and Edinburgh won fairly well 23 points to 7 and it felt like a comfortable win which would have really annoyed Glasgow the crowd in Murrayfield was fantastic I think it was a little bit of clever ticket sales and camera work because it looked like the opposite side of the stadium was largely empty but at least we finally had a wall of fans and a bit of noise in Murrayfield always put fans on the side the camera looks at. I think this game was really enjoyable and the fans who did turn out to Murrayfield got a good performance. This for me was a real case of a team of forwards against a team of backs though. And a team of forwards will always win because forwards win your matches, backs just say how much. That was certainly the case here. Edinburgh's pack was immense. They were winning all of the collisions and Glasgow didn't seem to know how to handle that. They weren't getting the quick ruck ball that they need to play their flashy back line. That's been a hallmark for Edinburgh all season though. Their pack and especially their back row are carrying so well and hitting people in the tackle so well that when they win those collisions they're always gaining the extra yards as well. How good was Hamish Watson? He was incredible. His strength in contact is immense. He's always making yards beyond the tackle. And you know what, he gets the ball back cleanly as well. He's just, he's a standout player for them. But he wasn't the standout player in this game, if only because a certain giant toddler on the wing for Edinburgh got gifted two glorious tries. Vandermeer won't care. He's got two tries to his name and they are proper poachers, wingers tries as well. I thought it was Jacob Stockdale. There's another baby-faced assassin in town, except this one is the shape of a fridge freezer. There was a chant going around, there's only three Van der Mervis. Brilliant. Well, these three Van der Mervis, this one got two of the tries. The first one was within a couple of minutes and Hastings just throws the intercept and all of a sudden Duhan van der Merwe catches the ball and the gas he has is outrageous. Like he out-sprinted Stuart Hogg to get back and score that try. Hogg is no slouch. 
let's be honest. Certainly not. And equally for the second try, you could see him, he had to jump up and catch the ball. And then he stopped when he hit the ground. And then he went nearly from a standing start. And he outpaced Hastings, who's quick as well. And there was cover covering across there. For me, this was a game that Glasgow could have won, though, if they'd been a little bit smarter. Where they seemed to be doing well was attacking with their kicking game. Peter Horn's try was a really good example of that. His brother, George Scrum Half, just saw exactly where he was. A little chip over the top from a rook about eight metres out. And Peter Horn just runs through and gets the try. The ability to catch that ball while diving over the line is brilliant. That is a skill that wingers would die for. It was so clinical. But you saw on a couple of occasions where Hastings and Peter Horn were doing crossfield kicks, Edinburgh weren't necessarily always well positioned. Part of that is because Blair Kinghorn tends to come into the defensive line rather than sitting back behind it. But they just didn't seem to go to that option nearly often enough. And you can really tell that Hastings wasn't have a great day. Like, the decision-making is fairly poor. It's funny because when I was writing my notes for this game, I have Glasgow strengths, Hastings, Glasgow weaknesses, Hastings. He was on both sides of the coin for this one. Uh, textbook mercurial, I think, is the word you want to use. He's really doing his best Finn Russell from about two years ago impression. <laughs> I think the game got a bit scrappy after 60 minutes, which you'd expect in this type of a fixture, both benches getting emptied pretty early on. Which is a shame because a fairly fast-paced game went up a notch in the second half. Definitely, and it was a bit more open. It was certainly more enjoyable to watch. But the game did break down and discipline kind of went out the window and Glasgow got a yellow card for their troubles. It was so funny watching Callum Gibbons try to protest this because he was like, I never touched him, I never touched him. You didn't, but you were standing directly in his passing lane after they'd broken your line and run 40 metres. You're always getting a yellow card for that, mate. <laughs> the discipline might have got the window, but the Glasgow set piece was poor. It was, and we talked about how dominant Edinburgh's forwards were. That wasn't just in the collisions in open play. Their scrum was all over them. Their line was all over them. They were excellent. On that alone, it's not surprised that Glasgow only got seven points from this. I know they're a good, flashy team, but you need a platform to build off. Very true. And when Glasgow looked their best, it was when Horn and Hastings were running the back line and they were able to inject that pace and lift the game. But they just weren't quite on the ball enough. And as you said, they didn't have enough possession or enough dominance physically to be able to win this game. And Edinburgh kind of had some of the same issues. Like their decision making was poor. And for a team that won, quite convincingly, that's a nice complaint for them to have. It is. Yeah. Jaco van der Waal to 10 was running a good game and he was getting his points but you look at the big difference here Edinburgh won by 16 points 14 of which came from two intercept tries this would have been a lot closer of a game if that hadn't happened and I think that was the last game on Saturday I'm pretty sure like there was, was, it there, was there was no other match that that day none nothing else happened you're sure there wasn't some sort of zombie movie filmed in the RDS of something coming back to life long after it was thought dead no 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 that, that, that didn't happen at all no 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 game no game so Leinster v Connacht 33 points to 29 Porik how how did Connacht throw this game away I have actual proper reasons great that would be excellent do they make any sense not at all <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a lot of disruption to Connacht going into this match Tiernor Halloran pulled out injured right before kickoff. Horwitz pulled out injured right before kickoff. So Bundyaki ended up going from the bench into centre Godwin ended up going on the wing and Fitzgerald and Joyce academy lads went onto the bench You're not wrong that is a lot of disruption to take and we've seen how that affected teams like Munster in the Heineken Cup but I have to say Connacht looked so composed coming out the gate That first try was just good running lines and clean passes They looked really good And fair play to Keller to back himself he still had a lot of work to do to get around Burn. he did 
and Byrne is absolutely no slouch. He certainly wasn't a slouch when he was jumping up and kneeing Jack Carty into the spine a couple of minutes later. Yeah, it was a bit mad. And I saw it, I was like, if Carty hadn't jumped there, he's getting binned for that. Because the person who jumps highest gets most care. That tends to be the case, all right. It's funny though, because like I've played fullback and I have never had my knee that far away from my body when I'm going up to collect a kick. It's very much an Israel Flau slash GAA type of jump. I think for me, whether or not you want to call it illegal, I think it was a little bit reckless. I probably would have penalised him. Nothing more than that, but... Poor Jack Carty certainly came off the worst from that exchange. Definitely, but I think he decided to go, yeah, 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 I'll just score one of the best tries of the season, just to make up for it. It was glorious, wasn't it? Connacht's backline moves, particularly off set piece, just looked so crisp. You were able to generate space and every pass seemed to stick. I think we learned from the home game of really having to work our backline to make space against Leinster because their defensive systems are very good. I think you're right. Leinster's systems in general are their strength. Is there any team in the world, maybe other than the Crusaders, better at holding on to possession and building phases? No, it's just incredible. I'm sure this was a great game for the neutral to watch. It was. Because there was a ton of tries and some really good tries. Like Blade and Carty linked up really well. I think Blade had a good game. It's just, I won't call this a game of two halves. It's a game of 60 minutes and the next 20. Although the one thing in the 60 minutes that I enjoyed was the slapstick comedy moment of someone wrapping bandages on the outside of Alton Deland's scrum cap. Yeah, that's a bit pointless, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I was just like, do you, do you think that's part of his head? What are you doing? I've worn scrum caps. The bandage would be actually better underneath it. Classically, that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, it was just mad. And actually, just before the 60 minutes, what did you make of O'Loughlin's tackle on Blade? Yellow. I'm sorry, it's just a yellow. He goes over the horizontal. It's a yellow. He lands on his side, fine. It's still a yellow. I think it's one of these ones where by the laws of the game, it is a yellow. There is really no room for interpretation even though it was pretty soft like but it is the correct application of the laws surely yeah it really is like i'd say clancy hasn't won many fans after that performance you know what though leinster did manage to come back and close this game out using some very leinstery behavior line out mall try they score a couple of those every game at the moment that was just really solid stuff yeah and you could see Connacht retiring in that last 10 minutes our defense was getting narrower and narrower the second day went wide they were causing damage I was amazed, though, that they didn't do that more often, particularly on Godwin's wing. He's not naturally a winger, and if you've got someone with Adam Byrne's pace and physicality on the wing against him, I don't know why they didn't put him into one-on-ones more often, because when they did, he got outside him and did him for pace. Outside him, inside him, like, I was behind the goal, and he could just see Godwin. He just didn't know what to do, and the cover defence helped him. I think standing him up was the best option in those situations because the cover did get across yeah. eventually. But at the end of the day, it wasn't good enough. And your last points were scored on 63 minutes. you, you got to keep scoring against this Leinster team. Yeah, even though going for that three was the right option at the time to make it a three-score game. Oh, it totally was. You just needed a couple more penalties to make it a four-score game. But you know what? As bad as throwing away a 17-point lead is, throwing away a three-point lead on the ball in the opposition half with four minutes left on the clock is just unforgivable. It's criminal. For me, that was the killer. It's like, when we had the ball, we were good. Leinster weren't getting the ball off us at the ground. So if we just held onto the ball for four minutes and tried to play out the back and just kept their heads, we would have won that match. You would have. And I really loved Andy Friend's interviews post-match as well. It's like, yeah, there's some good performances. Yeah, we've learned stuff, but we lost. Yeah, and the results are what matters at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think that's the big difference between him and Pat Lamb because, you know, there are parallels being drawn between them. 
Pat Lamb was all about the learnings, the systems, the structures, whatever. And defends the exact same thing, but he would always go, but we lost. He's very results focused and I think you got to respect that. Yeah, he is. I had my doubts about him at the beginning of the season when we didn't really know much about him, but he's really winning people over. Well, look, your line-out was really good. Your structured back play was really good, but your offloading game, which you'd have to think comes a lot from Friend and his sevens background, was just incredible. Leinster were totally unable to deal with it. Yeah, it was great to see that we were able to really pick holes. I think we did most damage in and around the centres. You can tell that isn't Leinster's starting centre partnership. For sure. And I think when Frawley came on in the second half, you actually saw the defence tighten up a little bit. O'Brien was really good going forward, but he just isn't quite settled into that defensive structure yet. And I'm not necessarily a big O'Loughlin fan. <laughs> no, you're not. He's still better than Noel Reed. Weirdly, not today. But yes, in general, totally agree with you. From Leinster's perspective, though, they were just able to fall back on the patterns that they know work so well. Hold on to the ball, rock the ball out, get clean ball back. And their scrum, particularly once the sub front row came on, was so strong. Yeah, I think the real difference here was the depth between both teams. The eight players that were able to come on for Leinster in comparison to the six that came on for Connacht. The difference was 17 points. It was. <laughs> that was tough to say, was it? Yeah. Well, look, from Connacht's perspective, what are they going to take from this? Just need to get fitter, probably, and need to be able to survive that type of an onslaught in the end of a game to close it out. Yeah, I saw the stats at the end of the game. Like We put in 200-plus tackles to Leinster's 90. <sighs> That's extraordinary. In a game where the scoreline was as close as it was, that's just mad. Moving on to the last game of the weekend, and this was the Italian derby, which took place on Sunday at 2 o'clock. Zebra narrowly losing out at home to Benetton, 8 points to 10. Can we just say Canna lost this, not Zebra? Because I never like to pinpoint a loss to one player, but oh my god, his kicking was so poor. It was weird because Canna's normally so strong for them and he pulls the team together, runs the game and his kicking is pretty reliable too. But he left eight points on that pitch, two missed penalties and a conversion with two of those missed kicks hitting the post. He nails any of those and it's at least a draw if not a win. Yeah, that was a really disappointing aspect from a really fairly enjoyable game. It was relatively unstructured and a bit of running. It was funny though, the Benetton try was from one of the worst crossfield kicks I've ever seen. Ian McKinley seemed to do really well in this game in spite of himself. I think that's Ian McKinley hands down though, isn't it, these <laughs> days? The winger still had to do so much to finish that and he took his chance really well. That was a proper winger's finish. It was and credit to McKinley, after a terrible crossfield kick, he then absolutely drains the touchline conversion. Yeah, it was a really good conversion. And I can't believe it took 36 minutes for Zebra to get on the board. Like, this was two teams attacking, but two defences really going at it as well. Some of the hits going in were earth-shattering. It's amazing to me that Benetton won this match, scoring twice. It's amazing to me that they didn't get a third score. Like McKinley was inches away from getting over for a try on 65 minutes, and that really would have wrapped the game up for Benetton. And it's not as if Zebra didn't have their opportunities. Like, they win a penalty in the dying seconds, and they go for the corner because... They all went, no, no, Canna's not going to get that. Even though it was one of the easier chances he was going to have, they win the line out, then fluff them all afterwards. It was a nightmare. How many times over this season and last year have we talked about the importance of having a reliable goal kicker? It's just so, so important. But the Benetton back three, and in particular Jaden Hayward, dealt with the kicking game really well. Zebra put a lot of ball down that channel, and it was very calmly and very coolly dispatched back to them, either running the ball back, picking good lines, making sure there was enough support around, or pinging them back in the corners. Benetton controlled this game a lot more. They really did. But I think both teams will be really worried about the lack of creativity. We've said it a few times this season now that Zebra and Benetton aren't creating a lot of chances, and an 8-10 scoreline just proves that. You know what? They'll both be looking forward to the rematch next week. 
that one's obviously going to be in Treviso and we'll see if there's a little bit more attacking flair on show. We finally made the halfway point of the season like we said earlier on and the tables are painting a very interesting picture. So Glasgow have been pinned back a little bit. Munster are now only six points behind them but then you've got Ospreys and Connacht only three points behind them. That's quite tight for those playoff spots. And Cardiff are on 27 points and they have to play Connacht home and away. Conference B on the other hand Leinster out in front on 49 points. Ulster the closest to them on 33 and then it's Scarlet's on 30 Benetton on 27 and Edinburgh on 26 there's so much competition in the top 5 of both the conferences it's just such a shame that the 6th and 7th in both conferences aren't yeah there's a 10 plus drop off in conference A to the Cheetahs and Zebra and a 10 plus drop off in conference B to the Dragons and the Southern Kings I just think it needs to be pointed out that Leinster have a 223 point advantage Glasgow and Munster have to be combined to be more than that in their conference because of the amount of damage they've been doing to people around them they're one of only two teams with a positive points difference just incredible and I think that brings us nicely to the second row top performer and clown the round and you've picked our top performer I have in a week where he was edged out for the Man of the Match award by his back row colleague, I think for me it's Geordie Murphy for Ulster. He was absolutely everywhere on the night. He battered the Munster back row. And probably what was most impressive to me was that kind of grunt work that he was putting in. On top of that, held his own in the line out. Just really impressive. Deserved Man of the Match, frankly. But you know what? With Marcel Kutsia stealing that from him, he can have the second row top performer award as a consolation prize. The second row should have got Man of the Match award. Got it. <laughs> Basically. But you know what? Talk about a player who made a really brave move to leave his club and strike out and really put his hand up for Irish contention in a World Cup year. He's made such a good decision and he's making a really, really good fist of that performance up in Ulster. He's a really, really good player. Like He's proven it for Leinster, he's proven it for Ireland and now he's just bringing Ulster to another level that they really needed a player of his calibre to bring them to and he deserves top performer this week. What about you, Pork? You've picked our clown of the round. I hope it's not a Connacht player. No, no, it's not a Connacht player. I don't think anyone deserves it after the heartbreak of that loss. I'm going to look towards Edinburgh v Glasgow and there's a standout player from this match for me and that's Hastings fool me once shame on me fool me twice shame on you like seriously two intercept passes like one's bad enough one's almost forgivable the (laughs) second one is bring outside to the back of a barn and be shot about but do you know what the funny thing is it's not like Duhan van der Merwe is Someone you would miss. He's a big lad. He's a bit, he's shaped like a door. (laughs) Yeah, like it's a bit unforgivable and it's very, very clownish. And that's in a week where Connacht threw away a 17 point lead. That really does hit home, doesn't it? (laughs) I think that's probably a fair recipient. And it really makes the case that Hastings is such a mercurial player. We've given him top performer on this and now he picks up a clown of the round award. He really can mix the sublime with the ridiculous sometimes. Yep, he is the new Finn Russell. Looking forward to next week's fixtures then. We're in round 12 of the Pro 14 and it's more derbies, Pork. It's all derbies. This is hype central. And we're going to be at the first of these games, Connacht versus Ulster in the sports ground on Friday night. We will need to bounce back big time after the loss against Leinster. You will, but Ulster will be looking to double down. True, but I'm hoping they'll have to rotate for this match, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. Fingers crossed. We have the rematch of the Italian derby then, Benetton against Zebra down in Treviso this time, and I think they'll be looking to press home their advantage from the first leg of that. Definitely, and then Glasgow will be hosting Edinburgh in the return leg of the 1872 Cup, and they'll be wanting to get revenge ASAP. Speaking of revenge, down in Thoman Park on Saturday, Munster versus Leinster, and that could be a humdinger. Looking at the teams that both of them put out this weekend, Munster v Leinster could see a lot of their internationals in the frame. And we'll both be down that match. It should be a great atmosphere and a great game. I'm not going to call it, and I doubt you're going to risk uh, jinxing Munster. No, 
absolutely not. <laughs> no, but you know what? I love getting down to the terraces in Tolman Park and there's always a good atmosphere at the Christmas games. Definitely. And to round out the Derby fixtures, it's an all-Welch affair with Scarlets hosting Cardiff and Dragons on Sunday hosting Ospreys. Two good games and it'll be interesting to see how they kick on from their results. Dragons would have taken a lot of pride even though they lost against Cardiff and Scarlets really with a point to prove. And if you're wondering where the South Africans are, like we said last week, South African Derby 1 will be played at round 6 of the European Rugby and South African Derby 2 will be played alongside the opening round of the Six Nations. And we will cover that as they come up. We certainly will. And that is us for this week. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back for more Pro 14 Derby action next weekend. We really do love hearing from you. So get in touch on facebook.com forward slash the second row or on Instagram and Twitter or at the second row. That's 2ND, not the word second. So until next time, goodbye. Thanks again for listening. and. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone.